This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. The scripture reading for today is Daniel chapter 6, 1 through 23. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the window opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about the royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him in the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, 
nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. This is God's word. Increasingly, Christians are experiencing exile. And what I mean by that is what we believe and how we behave as Christ followers is becoming more and more foreign to the culture we inhabit. This shouldn't be a surprise to us because one of the most frequent labels the New Testament writers put on Christians is the label of exile, foreigner, refugee, alien. We shouldn't be surprised at all by this. And the testimony of scripture is that this tension is not only going to remain, but increase. We're going to experience greater and greater opposition, even hostility, due to the faith we profess and the life that that faith calls us to live. So what do the scriptures teach us about living as exiles, foreigners, strangers, aliens, refugees in a strange land? The book of Daniel is a great place to go study that topic, and we actually began this last May. I don't know that any of you remember that, but we're going to pick it up again today. We're going to continue this line of contemplation as we look at this very famous story from the book of Daniel. We're going to think about five principles for living as an exile. Five principles, here they are. As an exile, contribute to the common good, make your Christian identity visible, pray through the antagonism. Don't put your trust in national leaders and look to the resurrection. Let's look at these one at a time. Number one, as an exile, contribute to the common good. A new leader is in power, Darius the Mede. Darius is quick to make Daniel one of three national administrators, and it's not long after that that Daniel so distinguishes himself that Darius expresses his desire to make Daniel the prime minister. The question is, how did Daniel do this? Well, the text gives us two words that describe what Daniel did in order to rise up the governmental ladder. Exceptional qualities and trustworthiness. So chapter six begins with a miracle, a squeaky clean politician. And this is exactly how God wanted his people to live as exiles. Daniel was talented and he possessed impeccable character. This is what God had said to his people many, many years before. Jeremiah 29, here's what God said to his people. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And this prophecy was written and delivered to the people of Israel well before Daniel 6 occurs. So Daniel is living out Jeremiah 29. And by this time, it had become a pattern for him. Daniel has been living this way in exile for nearly 70 years God's instruction to us as exiles is to contribute to the common good just as Daniel was doing. Now look, this introduces a hefty topic. The topic is how do Christians engage the culture? It's a very heavy topic. In thinking through the subject, you can't ignore the work of Richard Niebuhr in his book, Christ and Culture. In his book, he unpacks five taxonomies, five 
categories for ways of thinking about Christian engagement with culture. I'm not going to dive into this in too much depth today, but I want to gloss over a couple of those. The first is Christ against culture. This is the first taxonomy that Niebuhr talks about, Christ against culture. It's the position in which Christians reject culture entirely under the veneer of biblical fidelity. And Niebuhr traces this line of thinking through the rule of St. Benedict, through the Amish, uh, some Mennonite groups, the early Quakers, this type of ideas behind monasteries. The Christ against culture concept is separatistic. There are numerous problems with this, not the least of which is it assumes the evil outside me is a greater threat than the evil inside me. Solzhenitsyn had it right when he said the line between good and evil passes straight through the middle of every human heart. This particular taxonomy overlooks that. You can also note that this was not Daniel's approach. Daniel's making use of culture. He's actually building culture. He engages his culture. He's not reclusive from it, nor does he show any desire to to be so. So listen, when when the people of Alliance Bible Church are scattered throughout our community and even our country during the week, you don't just need to preach good news, you also need to be good news. And one of the best ways Christians can contribute to the common good by being good news in, in, in their communities is through their work. Whatever occupies you Monday through Saturday, that might be a job, it might be work that you don't get a W-2 for, whatever occupies you, do you contribute to the common good? Do your work, whatever that is, do that well and with integrity. Do it really well and do it with integrity. The English Puritans were among those groups who wrote copiously on how our work is a practical demonstration of love for neighbor. I want you to think about that. Think about some job, even if it was a, a part-time job like it was for me in high school working part-time at Arby's Roast Beef Restaurant, making sandwiches. Now, I wish I had thought more deeply about it when I was making those sandwiches. Because frankly, uh, some of those sandwiches weren't really well put together. That's not love for neighbor. That's not love for neighbor. If it's a product you provide, make a superb product. If it's a service you provide, make, a, make, make that service superb. And while you're working hard at providing a, a great product or service, do your work with honesty, integrity, and fairness. Honesty, integrity, and fairness. There was a shoemaker in Martin Luther's hometown who had become a Christian. And he came up to Luther and he said, what should I do now? As if to say, maybe I should quit being a shoemaker and go be a missionary or a pastor. And Luther turned to him and said, make a great shoe and sell it at a fair price. That's your call, people of Alliance Bible Church. Do your work well and do it with fairness and integrity. That's contributing to the common good. Second, as an exile, make your Christian identity visible. Daniel's enemies knew that if they wanted to bring him down, they would have to engineer a clash between the law of his God and the law of the land. Because they knew if Daniel had to choose, he's gonna choose allegiance to God over allegiance to state. And they knew that would be the only way they could get rid of him. The second taxonomy that Niebuhr discusses is the Christ of culture. First is Christ against culture. The second one is Christ of culture. The idea behind this 
is to take aspects of Christianity that are agreeable to the culture and use them for the benefit of society. But at the same time, it rejects aspect of Christianity the culture finds disagreeable. One of the best examples of this is Thomas Jefferson. Best example, he called himself a Christian saying, quote, I am a Christian in the only sense in which he, Jesus Christ, wished anyone to be after cutting up the New Testament so as to preserve only the bits that he found sensible. Another way to think of this classification is as accommodation. Let's hang on to the parts of Christianity we find reasonable and will be accepted by our culture, used for fulfilling the type of culture we want, but let's not hang on to the parts of Christianity the culture finds unpalatable or useless. Daniel (laughs) hangs on to it all. That's what gets him thrown in a lion's den. Now, if you connect the dots, you realize something. Daniel's religious convictions, even the unpalatable ones, were very visible. Weren't they? They were very visible. He was not a secret disciple. He was unashamed to let others know where his allegiance lay. Now, we as Christians face a similar temptation. Our temptation is to edit biblical Christianity. We can be tempted to draw significant attention to the Bible's teaching on taking care of the poor while leaving out the need to repent of sin, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow hard after Jesus. We can be tempted to draw significant attention to the Bible's teaching on the sanctity of human life while leaving out the absolute necessity of the new birth in seeing the kingdom of God. Partial Christianity is false Christianity. So if I was to sum up these two first two points, I would borrow Russell Moore's label. As exiles, we are called to engaged alienation. Engaged alienation. We're engaged. We work for the common good. Why? Because love, loving your neighbor is part of following Jesus. And one of the byproducts of loving your neighbor is contribution to the common good. But we're also alienated In every generation, there are parts of biblical Christianity the culture finds unpalatable. We hold on to those, even if it means paying a price. Third principle, living as an exile. Pray through the antagonism. The devious plot and Daniel's response to it is a challenge to us. Daniel's enemies were totally confident that Daniel would rather die than disobey the Lord. They knew Daniel would rather, soon, uh, rather go to the lions than give up his daily practice of private prayer. So Daniel's enemies suggested that the king should issue a decree that for the next 30 days, no petition, no prayers to be offered to any other god or man except the king himself, and rebels are thrown to the lions. And the purpose behind this isn't just to make Darius a god for a month. It's a political tactic similar to that of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. It's a test of the people's loyalty. Now, there are a number of ways Daniel could have responded to the edict. Put yourself in his shoes. How would you have responded? Maybe we rush before the king to protest the unfairness of the new law, or maybe we we go home to our friends and our family and complain about it. When Daniel heard about this new law, what did he do? He continued to do exactly as he had always done, three times a day. It was his habit to go to the upper room of his living quarters to pray. He didn't start a revolution didn't work to generate an alternate political campaign. He prayed. 
And notice the content of Daniel's prayers after the edict. He doesn't immediately cry out for deliverance from the unjust edict. Rather, he gives thanks to God, just like he had been doing. Isn't that remarkable? As he faced imminent death, his enemies would certainly see him. Daniel is still on his knees, giving thanks to God. I continue to be amazed at how often the scriptures directly and indirectly present us with a test of the depth of our prayer lives. Think for a moment how much of your time and energy in prayer is spent complaining about your circumstances and asking for things to be different versus how much of your prayer life is spent giving thanks to God for his goodness regardless of your circumstances. So as an exile, Daniel engages the clash through prayer, but it's not primarily prayer for circumstances to be different. That's wild. Daniel's concern was not primarily his outer life. It was his inner life. Daniel's political climate had turned volatile towards his faith, but his immediate reaction wasn't to pray that that would change. His immediate reaction was to tend to his own inner life. The Apostle Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. Contained within those 13 letters are eight prayers. It is remarkable to me that in those eight prayers, he makes no appeals for changes in the circumstances of the believers he's praying for. And I guarantee you, they face many dangers and hardships. They, They face persecution, death from disease, oppression by powerful forces, separation from loved ones. Their existence was far less secure than ours. Yet in Paul's prayers for these believers, there isn't a single petition for a better emperor or protection from ransacking armies. Not one. One petition that is remarkably repetitive in Paul's prayers for these Christians is to know the Lord better. As exiles, we pray through the antagonism especially for our inner lives. One of the best prayers you can pray as an exile is not, Lord, please change these circumstances, but rather, Lord, please change my heart through these circumstances. Fourth, as an exile, don't put your trust in national leaders There's an incredible oddity in this story that the author embedded in the text and the oddity makes a brilliant point. Did you notice that in verses 16 to 20, the writer fixes all our attention on the king? The whole focus of verses 16 to 20 is on the anguish of the king rather than the trauma of Daniel. So if you're watching this as a movie, Picture this as a movie. The guards bring Daniel on the precipice of the lion's den. They count to three. One, two, three. They heave him into the lion's den and the camera immediately shifts to the king and stays there. That's terrible filmmaking. Who cares about him? There was a dude that was just thrown to lions. That's what I want to see. 
So what is the author doing? What is the author doing? He, ke- he keeps us in suspense about Daniel's fate until verse 21. It's very strange. Daniel is the one in the lion's den. And all we hear about is the king and his anguish. Why? Verse 12, the writer depicts the king as naive. His own administrators outmaneuvered him into issuing this decree in order to set up Daniel. So this king's a bit naive. In verse 14, however, we're shown the king's compassion for Daniel, but at the same time, he's helpless. This depiction of the king is intentional. As if to say, the rulers may not be personally hostile to you, but even if they favor you, you dare not pin your hopes on them, for they can prove as helpless as anyone else. It's the writer's way of preaching Psalm 146, verse 3, which says, do not put your trust in princes. There it is, national leaders. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. The king's own words in the last half of verse 16 seem to indicate this as well. It's a desperate prayer, it's a desperate wish. So the writer is doing some preventative theology. He seems to say to Israel, you may have rulers or others in high places who are well disposed toward you, but don't rest in them as your ace up your sleeve. Don't you dare do that. For even they, with all their apparent power, can prove as helpless as Samson without hair. We've been in the Old Testament since September of 2017. I would hope that we've all figured this out by now. One of the dominant themes of the Old Testament is the utter unreliability of human leadership. We don't do this well. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. Fifth, as an exile, look to the resurrection Just like the story of David and Goliath, we can be tempted to put ourselves in the story where we don't belong. In the David and Goliath story, you don't belong as David. That's not who we are in the story. We're Israel, we're Saul, we're the ones cowering in the corner. Just like we don't belong as David in the David and Goliath story, we don't belong as Daniel in the lion's den story. Just in case anybody has any ideas to go hurl himself into a lion's den and test to see if the angels save you. We don't belong there. When that lion's den was unsealed and Daniel came out of it without a scratch, I'm reminded of another time when another man walked out of a sealed up den. I'm reminded of the resurrection of Jesus. Just three days before, As Jesus hung nailed to a cross, it appeared catastrophe had won the day. It appeared the agenda of the people, the Jewish leaders, the Roman government had been successfully enacted. On that Friday, as Jesus' body fell limp, breathless and lifeless, it appeared that all hope was gone. But just days later, we learn that the evil intentions of men were overruled 
by our sovereign, limitless, immeasurable, and unsurpassable God. During a sermon at Pentecost, Peter preaches to the group gathered in Jerusalem. This is what he says to me. He says, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. On the surface, it was a defeat. He was crucified. But in reality, it was a victory. He was made both Lord and Christ. So here's the deal. Daniel in the lion's den is a picture of of the power death has over you, Christian. And you know what kind of power that is? It's not a scratch power. If you have been united to Christ by faith, when Jesus came walking out of the tomb, so did you. So did you. As exiles, we live among the lions. But your ultimate hope is not impressing your pagan boss so she'll think highly of you. Your ultimate hope isn't political victories that preserve your life until you die of natural causes. Death is the ultimate exile and it's coming for you. It's barreling down the tracks and nothing can stop it. Your only hope is to be united to Christ in his resurrection. He's the only one who has or ever will walk out of a lion's den without a scratch. Question is, are you united to Christ? The Bible has a diversity of expressions used to describe how someone becomes united to Jesus. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth in Mark's gospel are the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Very first words out of his mouth in Mark's gospel, repent and believe the gospel. We're united to Christ when we repent and believe the gospel. What does it mean to do these things? What does it mean to repent? Repent has a twofold connotation. One is to change direction. It's a change of mind, it's a change of life direction. You were living for A, B, and C. Instead, you turned and you're living for Jesus. The second connotation it has is sorrow over sin. A change of direction and a sorrow over sin. That's what repentance is. We're united to Christ when we repent and believe the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Vanitha Reisner in her blog recounts a good way to wrap our minds and our hearts around the gospel. She writes this, our pastor recently explained the gospel through a simple analogy that was more straightforward than anything I had heard before. He said, it's as if we all have a piece of paper with our name at the top and underneath is a record of the sins we have committed. For each of us, that list would be incredibly long. She writes, I cringed when I considered what that paper would contain It would be tens of thousands of pages since it would include everything I've thought, everything I've done, everything I've not done. 
the unkind ways I've gossiped, the lies I've told to protect myself, the angry words I've snapped at my children, the jealousy I've felt when others have surpassed me, the indifference I've shown to the suffering of others, the doubt I've harbored about God's provision for me, the desire to build my own kingdom and not God's. The list would be endless if I considered all the ways I've failed to love and honor God and failed to love my neighbor. Our pastor went on to say, In the analogy, Jesus has a piece of paper too. He has his name at the top and underneath are all the sins he committed. His paper, of course, would be blank because he lived a sinless life. At the cross, Jesus exchanged his paper with ours. He crossed out our name from our paper with all our sins listed and he wrote his name in our place. And he took that paper to the cross where God poured out his wrath on Jesus for us. In exchange, Jesus put our name at the top of his perfect paper. So now when God looks at us, he sees Christ's sinless record. This is the gospel. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Repent and believe the gospel. It doesn't matter how bad your exile gets. One day, you'll walk out of the lion's den without a scratch. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, prepare us for life as exiles. What we believe and how we behave will become increasingly foreign to the culture we inhabit. Give us wisdom to know how to engage our culture and courage when faithfulness to you means alienation from it. Keep our expectations for life in this world modest. but Keep our sights lifted high on the life that awaits those who've been united to your son. We praise you for the resurrection which foreshadows the future of each believer. Because of Jesus, our future is incredibly bright. We worship you for that right now. In Christ's name, amen.